To get a look at the people and places we're talking about in this show, and to find out how you can call or email in a tip, visit our website, downthehillpodcast.com. You don't come out here too terribly often, but, you know, looking through these trees and kind of getting an idea of where everything is, what do you see when you look out there? You know, again, for not only myself, but several in the community, I I consider this... uh, hallowed ground, so to say, and the memories, more so the positive memories of, you know, of Abby and Libby and what they had to offer in in both their past and what they were looking to offer our community. This is the first year that there is not a press conference on the anniversary. The anniversary is this week. Do you worry that not having a press conference sends the message that the case is now cold? I will respond to that as I have a number of times and will continue to do so. Particularly, I fall back on the tips and information that continue to come into us. And if and if I recall correctly, I've commented that in our world, a true cold case is where you have nothing to work on, where basically all avenues have been shut down and nothing's occurring. We are far from that. I mean, we still have a lot of things to look into, following into, individuals to look into. So this, in my opinion, as sheriff, this is not a cold case. It is still a very active case. Police are also examining this Snapchat photo. It was taken just before both girls disappeared. I made the announcement that the girls have been found and it was not to a good end. We are investigating this as a crime scene. Uh, We suspect foul play. Law enforcement is saying that one of the girls actually took video on her iPhone. They say it was right before she was murdered. It's amazing that we have a video, we have a still photograph, we have sound, and we don't know who this person is. It could be half of the white males in Carroll County. To the killer who may be in this room, we likely have interviewed you. We know that this is about power to you. And you want to know what we know, and one day, you will. This is Down the Hill, the Delphi Murders. Part one, our theory. We've spent the last eight or so hours working to give you as full a picture as we can about what we know and the people this story has affected. Now that you have the picture, now that you have the known evidence, you probably also have at least one theory about what happened on February 13th, 2017. We do too. Dan, Drew, and I have spent many hours hashing it out, arguing, finding what makes sense. Before we share it, though, we need to say that what you're about to hear is based purely on what we've learned, based on publicly available information and our own experiences and reporting. It's ours, and not informed by anything more than what we've discussed with you. Also, you know the police don't comment on this case one way or another, and this is no exception. And before we start, we should say that for some, this could be tough to listen to. Here's what we think happened. In most murders, most crimes, it's often true that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. In a crime that seems incredibly complex on its face, we tried to simplify things, 
Again, we don't know most of this, but when we ask ourselves what makes sense, this is what we come up with. One person committed this crime, and the killer's planning of it began long before 2017. You've heard police, friends, family, and people who live in Delphi all say that he must be local. If you've been out to the bridge in the area where the girls' bodies were found, it's easy to see why. It's extraordinarily unlikely that you end up at any of those places unless you know where they are. They're just not easy to find. Through that area, the bridge, the creek, the trails, the woods, you'll find people hunting, hiking, fishing, camping, anything you might do outdoors. We believe that the killer was, and probably still is, someone who is really into at least one of those activities. Maybe he grew up walking those woods, or maybe he's newer and spends a lot of time outdoors. Either way, over time, it could be that a fantasy started forming in his head. In that bridge, maybe he started to see the perfect trap. And it really is. After you cross Deer Creek, the rest of that bridge is obscured by woods on both sides. Once you're there, there's nowhere to go except forward or backwards. The fantasy started to become a plan. He picked out his spot on the bridge, figured out how to take control and how to keep it. He worked out a route from the bridge to his intended site. And based on the fact that strange and unique signatures were later left at the crime scene, we believe he knew exactly what he wanted to do with his victims. We're told that in cases like this, killers who plan often rehearse. So we think he did exactly that. He rehearsed his plan. He walked his route. He practiced his methods. He was ready. All he needed were victims and privacy. When Kelsey dropped Abby and Libby off at the Red Gate outside the Mears farm, they walked that trail until it came to an intersection. Turn right and you'll follow a long trail ending up at the Freedom Bridge. Turn left, you'll follow a shorter trail and end up at the Monon High Bridge. They turned left. As they approached the bridge, he would have been out there, past the creek, in the trees. From that distance, he wouldn't have appeared very large. And seeing someone else out there wasn't a cause for alarm. After all, it was a popular spot for hiking and taking pictures. Abby and Libby walked out onto the bridge and slowly made their way across the creek. Now this part is key to why we think he was already out there. Not long after they crossed the creek, Libby took those Snapchat photos. We know they were across the creek because in the picture of Abby, you can see it behind her. And in the picture taken with the camera pointed in the other direction, Libby is clearly on the portion of the bridge that is obscured by woods. One major element missing from those pictures, though, another person. We know from the video on Libby's phone that the killer caught up with them not long after those Snapchat photos were taken. We also know that it's nearly impossible to move quickly across that bridge. It seems unreasonable to the point of absurd that he'd be able to catch up with them and end up where he did in the video, walking in the direction he's walking, if he started his approach from either end of the bridge. So where was he? To us, it makes sense that he was very close to Libby when she took those photos. Between the time when she took the picture of Abby and took the picture facing the other way, Abby, Libby, and the killer passed each other. It was at this point that the killer reached his decision. Were these the victims he wanted? Was there anyone else out there close enough to see or hear what he'd planned? Was he ready? If the answer to any of these questions was not what he needed, all he had to do was keep walking. Instead, 
After he, Abby, and Libby passed each other, he turned around and made his approach. And at this point, the picture starts blurring. We don't know enough details to be too specific, but based on what we do know, here's what we think happened next. Abby and Libby noticed him walking back in their direction. Now, if alarm bells weren't going off after he passed them, this could have started them. The direction they were all walking now, that only led to the end of the trail. It was private property from there on out. People didn't really go there. Seeing a man walking away from the end of the trail, back to where he presumably would have come from, that would have seemed normal. Him turning around and walking back towards the end, that would most likely have seemed unusual to them. At some point, signals were picked up. Maybe instincts started to kick in, and Libby started recording video on her phone. We know from Robert Ives that the video we do have of the killer is very short and almost out of frame. So Libby was most likely trying to hide the fact that she was recording. As he approached, she most likely kept recording and put the phone in her pocket. There's no way the killer could have seen her recording and not taken the phone or otherwise attempt to destroy it. Also, we know that whatever is on that recording is mostly audio. So the phone being in her pocket would account for that. Shortly after Libby started her phone, he caught up with them. He began with a simple greeting. And then he gained control of them. We don't know how. A gun or a knife seems likely, but we can't be sure. At this point, trapped on the bridge, as we said, you only have one direction to go, and we know that it's virtually impossible to run on that thing. They must have been terrified, but we know they were smart kids and that they wouldn't leave each other, so they were most likely playing for time, complying, and perhaps waiting for an opportunity to escape. At the end of the bridge, close to where the private property begins, he ordered them to turn northward and go. What happens from here to where their bodies are found is a complete blank spot. We believe that the girls moved under their own power down the hill, through the woods, and across the creek until they reached the spot where they were murdered. There were two victims, and one of them, Libby, was nearly 200 pounds. Carrying them for any real distance seems unlikely. We don't know how they were killed, or if it happened where they were found. If they weren't, it could not have been too far away given the difficulty carrying Libby would have caused. While we know the killer left signatures at the crime scene, we don't know what they were. Were their signatures part of how they were killed? Are they something the killer did post-mortem? And what made them so odd and strange? All we can do is speculate. Since Abby and Libby's bodies were discovered in an easy-to-miss ravine, we think the killer attempted to hide the bodies. So whether they were killed there or not, he put them there to buy himself some time to enact his escape plan. If our scenario is right, the killer did a lot of planning. He probably did his best to account for most aspects of this crime, how to take and keep control of his victims, how to ensure he had the time and privacy he needed to do what he did. He had to have known, had to have, that once the girls went missing, once whomever his victims were to be went missing, a massive search would begin. He would have accounted for that too in his post-crime planning as he figured out how to get away with it. And he's most likely out there somewhere designing his next trap.
We've been asking throughout this series, what the hell happened out there? That's our theory. Again, it's all based on what we've learned in our reporting and what's already out there. To us, that's what makes sense. It just fits. A big part of the what comes from an understanding of the who. Former profiler Mary Ellen O'Toole, she was with the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, and you met her a few chapters ago, sat down with us to work through some of that. And again, it's worth mentioning that the police won't comment on the crime scene or the killer beyond what they've already said. In instances involving young female victims, where there looks like there's the presence of predatory behavior, which is basically hunting behavior beforehand, um, it would make sense that this was a sexually motivated crime. But but crimes generally, um, even very simple crimes, have multiple motivations to them. So while sex may be uh, part of the primary motivation in this crime, there's also uh, um, the motivation of being uh, the, the thrill and excitement of the hunt and then the killing. So with, with something like this, you're probably dealing with multiple motivations. And what's interesting as well is that motivations can change actually during the scene itself. So if victims react to the offender in a way that he did not anticipate, then his motivation may be different to, okay, now I have to overcome this victim. I have to take back control from this victim. So that's why as a profiler, going to the scenes or um, being able to observe video from the first responders that they took of the scene becomes really important because we can tell what the interaction is between the offender and the victims as the crime continues. Based on um, what I've heard and, and what I've read, is that there is planning that went into the crime. And when you, if you have an offender who decides on the crime and then picks victims who are available, then um, in the cases where I've seen that to be the case, um, it usually involves offenders who tend to be sexually sadistic, which is um, concerning. Uh, because they are, they can't, they can be, and they are the most violent um, sexual offenders that we know of. Sexually sadistic offenders are are offenders who pick the location where the crime will occur, and then will pick victims of opportunities. So they're not known to the victims. That makes sense to me because the violence in this case seems to be instrumental violence, as opposed to reactive violence. Somebody hits me in the nose and I hit them back. That's the most common type of violence. But instrumental violence is important to really understand, I think particularly as it may be um, applicable in this case. And instrumental violence usually involves strangers or can involve strangers. It also is very cold-blooded. Um, it's very predatory. And it's completely devoid of any emotion um, on the part of the offender for the victim. And I think in this, in, in this case, of course, the victims are just objects to this kind of an offender. So if we're talking about somebody that is engaged in instrumental violence um, and it's predatory in nature, if, if in fact he did not know them, he picked the location but not the, the young victims, then he is a sexual predator and predatory behavior is consistent 
uh, with someone who has the personality disorder that used to be referred to as sociopath. That term was thrown out in 1968. The, the new term we use now is someone who's psychopathic. And when you have someone who's psychopathic, if that's the case, who's also a sex offender, they can do anything they want to their victims, and they feel themselves absolutely no remorse or guilt for what they do. But I will also tell you that this offender was very comfortable out there. You could hear it in his voice, if that's his voice. Um, if that's him walking on the bridge, he's not excited. He is not nervous. He's not from what's been um, displayed um, through the video and through the photographs. He doesn't appear to be highly impulsive, but someone that, again, is, is um, in charge uh, of himself and in control. Now, when he first accessed the girls, um, I've had cases where um, you've got two victims and one offender. You've got you know, young girls who could run away. There may have been... Um, um, an effort on his part or may have been something that he did to show them a weapon to make sure that they complied with him and would not run away or would not do something else to interfere with the crime. So he would have come prepared, but control with two young victims like that um, would be very important. And so was his voice enough? Maybe not. You described quite a bit about what kind of person might have done this. Do you have any opinion on what that person might look like in his everyday life when he's not committing crimes? I do, crimes? actually. I, I do. Um, when you have a case um, like this or a case that despite the tremendous effort on the part of the detectives and the law enforcement folks that have been working this, when someone is able to fly under the radar screen um, like this, for an extended period of time, it's generally because they appear to be so normal and non-threatening. And I think that's that's a theme that I heard um, on on um, you know some of the the podcasts that I listen to. But I've seen it in cases where BAU has worked, where the person just doesn't stand out as somebody that is um, threatening, that stands out as someone that's um, scary are creepy, they're very normal in two ways. They're normal in their behavior and they're normal in their lifestyle. So meaning that they could have a, a job, a good job, they could be married, they could have children, and in their everyday life, um, they appear as normal as you and me. Do you have an opinion, I know you haven't been to Delphi, but do you have an opinion about the location that he chose and why he chose it? Does he live near there? Yeah, I think that location is important. Um, you know, while anything is possible, uh, because this is an offender with a certain amount of confidence and, and a sense of being self-assured, but when you have a, a location like that, it generally suggests, at least initially, that that's a location where they are comfortable based on having been there before, having knowledge of it, knowing that there's a victim pool that would likely be there, especially since it was a uh, snow day, that there may be kids out there, um, and more specifically, girls out there. But it does suggest a familiarity. Now, here's what's interesting to me, too. When you commit an outdoor crime scene, you have no control over who sees you, who writes down something, um, 
who observes you doing what the last thing that you want them to see, and they run to the police and, and all of a sudden you're confronted with law enforcement. So there's a lot of risk that this offender took to commit that scene and to do it there. That tells me that this is an offender who's very comfortable with taking risks in their, in their life. They're not um, stressed out by what they did. They're not stressed out or anxious about their behavior, but he did go, he, he did take a lot of risk by committing an outdoor crime scene. How do people like this get caught? Well, there would have been a lot of forensic evidence at the scene. Um, just in my opinion, I, I, I would think that there would be quite a bit. And based on the forensic evidence, um, that's probably the way this person will be caught, identified and caught. And I think that the evidence unlike a lot of murder cases and serial murder cases that I've worked, is going to include or could include things like DNA, whether it's semen or blood. It could include fingerprints. It could include hairs and fibers, trace evidence. And I think what's really important is that these offenders think that they are smarter than law enforcement and smarter than forensic scientists. They may have read a book or two. But in the heat of committing that crime, um, they will have shredded, they will have transferred some kind of, of evidence and the application of new technologies to the evidence that law enforcement has, uh, I think there's a real good chance that's what will identify this person. And again, part of the reason that they fly under that radar screen for such a long time is they don't go home or back to work and behave in a real nervous way, in an anxious way. They'll go home and have a hamburger and french fries with their family, for example. So those kinds of post-offense nervous behaviors may not be applicable in this case. And again, it's worth mentioning that the police won't comment on the crime scene or the killer beyond what they've already said. Ourselves. The time for brand new Rick and Morty adventures is almost here. Wait, wait, what? This is what you've been waiting for. New Rick and Morty on Adult Swim. Part two, just a matter of time. During our conversations with friends and family in Delphi, it's pretty evident that in between the feelings of sadness and loss, there are flashes of hope and optimism that the arrest everyone wants of Bridge Guy is coming. I'm confident that we're getting closer. That's Erica Gibson, good friend of Abby and Libby. We say that every time, but that's because we're getting closer. Every tip that comes in, everything, every person who hears the voice, sees the face, that's just getting closer and closer to finding the person who did it. Abby and Libby's friend, Cynthia Rossi. It doesn't make me a bad person for sometimes questioning, well, it's been this amount of time, is it going to happen? That asking that question is okay. And I've learned that it isn't up to me. It's in the hands of those who were trained to find the person. And I have full trust in them and that they're 
doing the right thing and they know what they're doing. Abby's mom, Anna Williams. Your biggest fear is that he's going to do this to somebody else, that he already has done this with somebody else, um, that somebody else's family is suffering. I feel like that's a big concern. So I'd sleep a little bit better knowing that this isn't ever going to happen to anybody else. And when we catch this guy, I'll be able to close this chapter of wondering. There is also rage. Here's Pastor Todd Ladd again. When you think of someone who takes young girls' lives, it makes me angry. Now, that can be young girls' lives here in Delphi. That can be children who are affected anywhere else. That could be uh, things in Syria across the world where bombings occur and children are killed. Yeah, that stuff makes me angry. But again, what do we do? Is it anger that enfolds us and controls us? Or is it a way that moves us to response to make a difference in the world? So, yeah, I have the fe- feelings of anger. I have the feelings of how in the world? How could someone do that? Here's Erica Gibson again. Until trial, you know, we won't exactly know if they can pin him guilty, but it's directed towards more hope and more closure than it is hatred and anger. Because, like, I'll still be angry then, but the family's getting closure, the community's getting closure, kids can stop being scared to walk to school or walk to the park or go to the trails because this person would be caught. And so it will be directed differently, and I think it's going to be a big change, a good change for everybody. When and if that day comes, though, former Delphi Fire Chief Daryl Sterrett won't be able to forget what he couldn't deliver. Well, from the beginning, we were asked to find two girls. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And I was asked by a very good friend to help them out. And I couldn't do that. I know that's not being realistic, but one time that man has ever asked me anything. Has ever asked for my help. And I couldn't help him. Three years after this crime, we went back to Delphi again and sat down with Mike Patty and Superintendent Doug Carter in Mike's kitchen. We wanted to hear from them together about what moving forward looks like, how two men who were leading very different lives in 2017 are now linked and working towards the same end. I had no idea uh, that we would now be 36 months out, but... I get my my inspiration. This is very personal to me, and a lot of that comes from my guy named Mike Patty and his wife Becky and Anna, um, because I owe, I owe them some answers, and I owe them a resolution so that they can continue on somehow with their lives in a new way, and that will never happen until this is done and over. So um, I think the next step would be for this community. We talked a lot about that the last time. Um, and then after the community for this part of the state, then the state, then the, then the region, and then, then the entire nation. But it starts with, with a guy named Mike Patty and his wife, Becky, to me. And I uh, appreciate that. It means a lot. Uh, obviously, we've met and we've talked a lot, you know, corresponded back and forth. And we've been from one side of the country to the other. Literally. And uh, actually become friends. And... Uh, 
and that's a good friendship. I, I do like that. And I cherish it, and I, I, I appreciate that. But you're right. You owe me. You you owe me something. Yeah. But I'm going to work as hard as I can to help you deliver on that, and you know that. And I and I, I maintain that position, and I won't change that position because we're, we're we're working to the same goal. And uh, I'm not going to stop. Anything that, that Doug has asked of me, uh, I've delivered or done my best to deliver. And uh, I've asked something of him, and he's working as hard as he can and his team and supporting it to, to make that delivery. And one day we will. And uh, it's, it's just a matter of time, you know, staying after it, uh, keep pushing forward. We're not, we're not going to let up. Trust me, I want this thing solved yesterday as bad as anybody, uh, probably more so. Um, but I realize it's, it takes time because there's really two deliverables here. One is, is Doug building and his team building up, making a case to make an arrest. Then it goes over to the prosecutor who has to prosecute the case. And, and we can't lose sight of that because we, we, we got to get it right. And we have to get it right. And if that missing piece of the puzzle is the piece he's needing, um, then that's what I'm out there advocating for people to call in. If you have a one little tip, one little bit of information, you may think, oh, it, that's insignificant. No, it's not. Let those professionals, that's what these guys do for a living. Um, let them let them vet that out and make that determination. It's, it's not for me. Even myself, people call me up and say, hey, I think it's so-and-so, or I got this information. I, say, I tell them I'm basically kind of becoming an investigator. <laughs> I start asking the questions, and I said, you know, I'm turning this in because I can't go make the arrest. You know, it's truly going to be law enforcement you know, that's Mike, going to deliver on it. so that. interesting you say that, and, uh, you know, that is that's a, it's probably something I should talk more about. But you're right, because... Once the arrest is made, all fifty thousand tips are going to be are going to be dissected. Every single one of those tips will be dissected, and we'll find out if there's any connectivity. Because if we jeopardize this, we can't pull it back. It's easy for the media or citizens or whomever to say, "I think it's this," and if they're not wrong, if they're wrong, it's okay. But Mike is exactly right. We if we jeopardize this, we own it. We own it. And I'll hold people accountable. Absolutely, as that. you should. And, and that's why we, we want to get it right. And we're going to continue to. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough row here to hoe, you know. Um, but I entrust in, in what law enforcement's doing. And so when they, when they call me, I'm waiting for that call. Doug will call me and say, Mike, we got it. Good prevails. If it didn't, we, will, we wouldn't live in a civilized society. But it is a civilized society, and the vast majority of people are good. But there's also evil, and um, this is an example of evil. Do you ever question that, uh, or does that faith in good winning ever waver for you? Oh, absolutely. You know, my dad, uh, my dad was a, was a state trooper, and when he gave me my badge some 35 years ago plus, he said, don't become cynical like me. And... Um, on his deathbed, I told him, Dad, I'm not cynical, but I'm getting close, and I'm fighting it. I'm curious what your thoughts are on good versus evil, and does good win? Yes, good good, and the truth will always prevail. You know, uh, 
you know, that's uh, from my Christian beliefs, you know, and the fact that um, the Lord will deliver. We certainly hope it's in our lifetime, and I certainly hope it's here and now for us. If not, there's a higher power that will be answered to and will judge, and um, that'll come in time. It doesn't satisfy us while we're here on, on this earth, and we want that so badly. I can't think like this guy. I, I've tried to put my mind in the same place, and... I, I don't think I can. Uh, I've tried to use some kind of weird psychological, you know, what would this guy think and why would he do something like that? And and I've been out there and, and think the same things and and just try to hope something would hit me, you know. But, uh, you know, Mike, he may be free, but he's really not. His soul is, his soul is closed and dark and cold. That's a good uh, point. That's he... A- um, he goes to sleep like you and I do every single night, and then he wakes up, and the last thing he thinks of is what he did, and the first thing in the morning he wishes it would go away. I know that to be true. I just really do. That I just don't believe that he has got a clean soul, and he'll never, ever, ever uh, be able to, 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 to cross the gates of heaven. And, no and way. another way I look at that as for him... And you're right, he may be walking amongst us, but he's got to be continually looking over his shoulder. Absolutely. It's not a good way to live. Are there moments of anger, or do you feel like that's not productive? What kind of role does that play in your roles in this? Well, for myself personally, um, of course, I'm angry down inside, and I, and I, um, I don't let that out because that I use, I'm a very pragmatic person. I try to think my way through things. Um, am I angry down inside about? Yes, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm uh, disappointed that this even happened. Um, but, to, you know, I've, to lash out at somebody in, in just raw anger, uh, what value will that provide? What value? How are you? I'm good and pissed off, frankly, for all the reasons we've already talked about. And my soul's getting eaten from the inside out. If I saw the person that did this to them, I don't think I'd be angry. But I, I would just simply want to know why. You know, what were you thinking at that moment in time? And how freeing that must be to him once he'd be able to tell somebody that. And I just can't help but to think that it would be um, an opportunity for him to release what he's feeling inside. And, re- and trying to, to, to release what he saw in those final moments. Those are the kinds of conversations I'd want to have. It may, it may be unspoken, but you you would get an answer. In my in my entire career, I've only seen f- now five, soon to be five, I believe, evil people, truly evil. They don't care if you live or die, but even they have had an explanation as to what they did and why. This one's different because I can't explain why. And. Uh, like we said when this all started, I owe that explanation to Mike Patty and his family and to many other members of the family. And I'm sorry you remember that club. I really, truly am sorry. Uh, I wish there could have been something that we could have done prior to that that would have prohibited this from happening, but I guess that wasn't in the cards. Yeah. Well, um, aside from the appreciation, which he knows how much I appreciate the 
the dedication and, and the resources that he's bestowed upon us, um, when I say us, as a local community, uh, to help uh, travel down this path. But uh, I wish I'd have met the man on different circumstances. We could have become friends a different way. And uh, then we could sit around and joke and laugh and cut up about different things. And But uh, we still have a laugh or two. But for the most part, we're, we're, we're focused on the same thing. We, we, we got an objective. And, uh, we even had a cold beer in California once. I think we did. <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple maybe of a them. Couple. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was an enjoyable moment as well. But uh, there again, we were still doing that, focused on the objective and uh, the deliverable here. So, uh, thank you. Thank you for everything. And uh, I know you're not going to give up. Part 3. Riding with Tobe. When this podcast ends, you will move on. New podcasts, work, other things. Me, Barb, and our producer Dan are moving on to other stories, other cases. But after we've all moved on, the town of Delphi won't. The families of Abigail Williams and Liberty German won't. Even Doug Carter, the face and voice of the Delphi murder case in many ways, is going to need to return to work running the state police. More budgets, meetings with the governor. But Sheriff Tobe Lesenby, who wears the badge in Carroll County, with the bald head and powerful mustache, won't. He can't. This crime is at his front door. Now, you grew up in Carroll County, right? Actually, I grew up in Clinton County, the next county south of us here. So, But um, I've spent more of my adult life here than in my home county. So, yeah. It's a 10-minute drive from Tobe's office to a small roadside cemetery along 300 North. It's about as close as you can get to the crime scene without stepping onto private property. So, we are at the cemetery Mm -hmm. and explain for me where the crime scene was. Yeah. Um, in that I'm, I'm not the, the best judge of distance, I will visually, physically describe. There's a ridge. There's actually two ridges here, one very close to us, and a second one on, on over a few more hundred feet. Mm-hmm. Beyond that second ridge, much closer to the Deer Creek, is the area where the girls were located. And you're confident that this case will be solved? I am. I am. And that's... Again, uh, you know, I've been at it for 34 years now. And, um, you know, Grant, we we haven't uh, resolved every one of them. But, you know, I, I come from the cloth that uh, yet to this day that good wins over evil. It may take some time. Seems like it does some days. But, you know, we we have that continued perseverance about us and persistence. So I feel like we will gain resolve with with this investigation. And unfortunately, I just, I don't know when. 
When we spoke to you in September, you said that you had a handful of names in your head that you couldn't get out of your head. Mm -hmm. I think you said five. Mm -hmm. Has that changed since then? Have you added any? Have you taken any away? I did the second part, I would say. I think in my own mind uh, that possibly at this stage we have narrowed that list down, um, you know, maybe, you know, three or, three or four. But at the end of the day, you know, when an arrest is made, Doug Carter's going to go back to Indianapolis and deal with the state-level stuff that he has to deal with. But whoever is arrested in this case is going to be sitting in a jail cell feet from your office. Have you thought about after the satellite trucks go away, after Doug Carter and the ISP return back to Indianapolis, and you're working and you turn off the lights in the office, and that guy's just down the hall? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I haven't, but um, that's, that is an interesting thought. Um, more so, I guess, from an administrative standpoint, um, being the, I feel the professional that I am as, as sheriff of this county, and this is the way it is for all other 91 sheriffs in the state of Indiana, we are, we are charged with the, by state law, the care of individuals within our facilities. And so, therefore, I, I take that responsibility seriously. On a, I guess I'll call it a personal side, you know, I, yeah, I'd love to, you know, potentially go back there and just have conversation. But, again, the, the law would more likely at that stage, uh, you know, prevent me from doing that because they have legal representation. What would that conversation be? You know, I, I again, I learned many years ago as a, as a young deputy, one of the simplest questions, it's a simple question, the response is not so simple, but the simplest question, I guess, I would want to ask is why? Why did you do this? Believe it or not, that's one of the questions that we rarely get an answer to. They can tell us the how, the where, the when, the what, those kinds of questions, but when it comes to the why, we don't always get a straight answer. I noticed when you get in your car, you have the sticker on your dash that said, you know, paraphrasing, but at the end of the day, God's got this. Faith sounds like it's an important part of you and your resolve with this case. Very true. Very true. I, lo I honestly look forward to the day going back spiritually that when we have that that final press conference, I want to be able to stand up in front of everyone and honestly say to God be all the glory because he will help us resolve this. And as a second statement, I honestly want to say we got him. Until then, until Tobe can say those words, it's just open-ended. It's just going. This podcast, this story, unrolled to you in parts, nine episodes, that we hope was able to shine a light on a dark crime that took away two young lives, forever changed a host of others, and shifted the trajectory of an entire town. For all of them, this case doesn't end after nine chapters. It doesn't end when they return to work. It continues. 
with no certainty that the open will at some point close. But ask any police officer, any sheriff, any man or woman of the law, and their work begins and ends with the unwavering belief that justice always wins. Every time. But that means never letting up. And turning over every rock twice. Just in case. What do you think about when you come out here? Have we missed something? You know, is there still something here that we haven't fully ingrained and and picked up on? Um, You know, I, I remember the words of Dr. Henry Lee and study the crime scene. It will tell you the story of what what has happened in a particular area or location. And so um, I'd like to think that, yes, we've we've covered all the bases, but, you know, we're human. We miss things. We we ask ourselves to a certain degree, you know, have, have we missed something here? Down the Hill is written and produced by Barbara McDonald, Andrew Iden, and me, Dan Semitovich, with original music and scoring by Shuvo Sir and production support from associate producers Michael Dudley and Kayleen Chassie. If you want to see the people, places, and things we're talking about, visit our website, downthehillpodcast.com. Brian Bell is HLN's Senior Director of Programming, and Tyler Moody is the Vice President of the Warner Media Podcast Network. Sherry Seldes is our senior production manager. A lot of folks at HLN and CNN work very hard to help make this show go, and we want to give a big thanks to them, too. Also, a special thanks to the people of Delphi and the members of law enforcement who are in charge of solving this crime. And most important of all, we want to thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.